Uh, let's pray together and, and get started here. Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of this morning. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather uh, together as the, the body and the bride of Christ, that we get to hear the word of Christ, that we get to sing praises to the glory of Christ. We thank you for the precious gift of your Son who has purchased our salvation, who has brought us together, uh, united us to himself. We thank you for your providence, that you truly are sovereign and good and wise in all that you do. We thank you for the particular care that you show uh, your people. We thank you for the fact that you truly are working all things together for good, even, even the, the evil things. Lord, pray this morning as we uh, wrestle with the difficult uh, topic of your providence over sin, that you would help us. Help us to understand these things. Help us to see uh, even the, the hope that we can have uh, in these things. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been uh, working through chapter 5 of the Confession on uh, Providence. Um, we had just previously come from creation, the chapter on creation. Before that, the chapter on decree. And we talked about how those all relate together. That what God decrees in the past, he accomplishes, uh, what God decrees in eternity past, I should say, he accomplishes uh, through the very way that he creates things and through his providence, uh, through the way that he works within creation. And we've seen that uh, just as God has uh, decreed all things that come to pass, he is, he is provident over it, he's sovereignly good in it. And so last week uh, we, we looked at a difficult question. Pastor Brennan addressed the fact that God's providence even includes, uh, encompasses sin. That sin, that, that God actually is working through the means of sin. Though he's not the author of it, uh, he doesn't like it, right? God actually hates sin more than we do. Um, and yet he is using sin to accomplish his good uh, and wise purposes. And so this morning uh, from there we're going to go into sort of the next question which is how does God's providence over sin impact the believer and the unbeliever? How does that play out in the life of the unbeliever and the believer? What's the, the difference between those two? That's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And, and again, it's a, it's a difficult topic, um, but it's a biblical topic. It's something the Bible talks about. It's something that God has revealed to us. And so we must wrestle with it. We must think through it. Uh, we must treasure it because every word of God uh, that he has spoken is precious. It's, it's, it's of grace that, we, that God would say anything to us. And so we don't want to uh, hide from it. We, we want to understand it. And so uh, this morning, like, like I already said, we're going to be looking at God's providence over sin. And how that relates to the believer and the unbeliever. What is God accomplishing even uh, through sin in the life of the believer and the unbeliever? And so first, let's look at God's providence over sin in the life of the believer. 
Uh, chapter uh, 5, paragraph 5, we read, <clears throat> The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruptions and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends, so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment, for his glory, and their good. So we're going to break down this uh, beefy paragraph here, and and first uh, let's reread that first part there. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the uh, corruptions of their own hearts. And so first of all, I want us to know, I want us to, to always go back and remember the character of God. That's what the confession does. That, that this God who, who is doing these things, who is, who is uh, sovereign over these things, is wise. He, he knows what he's doing. He's righteous. He's right in what he is doing. And, and he's gracious. That however God uh, is working, uh, using sin... I should say, in the life of the believer, it's, it's a gracious purpose that he has. He's giving us something that we don't deserve that is good. So we want to remember that. We want to constantly remember the, the character of God as we look at the province of God. We also see that in this paragraph, it's talking about uh, how God uses sin, though again, he's not the author of it, how God uh, uses sin uh, in the life of his own children. And so first of all, we want to note that God's providence over sin with the believer is in the relationship as a father. That what he's doing in the life of the believer is uh, in the role of a good and gracious and righteous and wise father. That's important. It's not uh, as a judge, it's as a father. Uh, We also want to note that uh, the temptations and corruptions uh, come from our own hearts. He says, uh, they say, does oftentimes leave for season his own children to manifold temptation and the corruptions of their own hearts, right? This isn't something that God is producing in the person. God isn't creating sin in the person. The source of the sin is from our very own hearts. That's where it originates from. It's, it's not from God. He's not the author over it, which um, means that any time really that, that we don't sin, it's because God is restraining our hearts, right? And what, what God does, uh, we'll, we'll see a biblical witness of this, but God sometimes removes some of that restraint in the life of the believer, to show what is there, the corruption of our own hearts, the sinfulness of our own hearts, that God oftentimes leaves for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. And I, I think probably most of us have experienced 
one time or another, many times, where there's seasons of greater temptation, or we see more and more just the sinfulness of our own hearts. And what God is doing is, is he's not creating sin that wasn't there. He's removing not all of the restraint, but some of the restraint to show us what is there, what was there all along. And he has uh, purposes for that. And that brings us to the next question. Why are there these seasons of greater temptation in the Christian's life? You ever wonder that? Why, why, why do I still deal with this sin? Why does this... Uh, why am I having an, an awfully hard time right now with this temptation? Well, the answer given here, and we'll, we'll look at, again, the, the biblical witness to this, is that God removes that restraint over our sin to chastise or discipline them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruptions and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends. And so, what is, what is God accomplishing in this? When, when God uh, removes part of the restraint over our sin, when, when we encounter these temptations, when we see in, in a greater measure the sinfulness of our hearts, uh, he may be accomplishing uh, all or, or some of these. One is, it's a form of discipline. Not judgment, but discipline. That God is uh, chastising uh, the believer for that sin, and it's for good reasons, right? Just like a good father disciplines his son or his daughter, uh, he does it for good reasons, okay? Uh, secondly, we see in this paragraph that uh, God uses sin in the believer's life to reveal sin. That God removes that restraint to show us what was there all along. And that's actually a good thing because it's reality. It's, it's truly there. Uh, if we have any problem with, with something, it, it's that oftentimes we don't actually think it's there. We think that we're pretty good people. Right? And so what God is showing us is he shows us the truthfulness. This is what your heart is. This is what you are like. And he does that for good purposes. That, that when we see the sinfulness of our heart, we should all the more see our great need for Christ. You know, I thought I needed Christ uh, when, when I was young. I know that I need him even more now. Why? Because God, time and time again, he, he reveals to the believer the sinfulness of their heart, which then... Uh, not only shows us the reality of our sin, but it shows us even more the reality of God's grace. You know, if, if we think that we're just a little bit of a sinner, it's almost like our sin's an anomaly, that we're ordinarily good people, but our sin is just a, you know, it's because I had Chinese food last Grace is that small as well. Right? If I think my sin is a little thing, then his grace is a little thing. But as God reveals to us more and more the extent of our sin, he's also revealing to us the extent of his grace. 
just how gracious he has been to us, and that is a good thing. God also uses um, sin in the life of the believer. Again, he's not the author of it. it, comes from our own hearts, but he uses it to produce humility. We'll talk about this more in a moment, but one of the greatest dangers to the Christian is pride. Um, and so it's good for us to, to see our sin and be reminded of who we are apart from the grace of God. It's, it's good that God shows us that to produce humility. The confession, confession also notes that God uses sin to bring about a greater uh, closeness to God, the realization of our dependence on God, that we would draw near to him. Is that a good thing? That's a very good thing. Right? To, to, to realize how much more I need uh, God and to draw near to him as, a, as I see my sin. How much, how, how much I am dependent on God to work in me. These are true things and they're good things. And then lastly, uh, the confession notes that God uses sin in the life of the believer to make us more watchful. That often we can be uh, sleepy watchmen, as it were, uh, with our greatest enemy, sin. That we don't realize that sin is always at the, the gate, ready to barge in. And so as God reveals that fact in our, in our, in our hearts, that sin is just ready to come out, ready to, to try to conquer us, ready to uh, wreak havoc in our lives, as we see that, God uses that to make us more and more watchful for our sin. That it is a very real enemy. And that we need to be watchful for it. That we're, we're prone um, uh, to sin. So let's look at the biblical witness of God's uh, providential purposes for sin in the believer. I mean, before we go on, just, what I love about this list is this is written by men who have obviously experienced the reality of these things. You know, they, they have tested these things. They've seen these things play out in their lives. And, and as believers, I, I hope that we can also see how God has graciously um, used even our own sin for these good purposes. Um, but but let's, let's look at 2 Chronicles 32. I have, that, have it there on your sheet, but you can also turn there. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, starting in verse uh, 22. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. If you remember right, uh, they were surrounded by the Assyrians. Uh, God delivered uh, Hezekiah uh, from the Assyrians. And not only that, he provides for Jerusalem many good and gracious gifts given by God to Hezekiah and the people, verse 23. And many brought gifts to the Lord, to Jerusalem, and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. These, these great victory, this great victory and these great gifts ends up uh, exalting Hezekiah. Okay. Now at this point, we should realize that there's a danger here for Hezekiah. Right? That any time... 
God graciously gives good things. Anytime God graciously exalts a man, what is the danger? Pride. And we see that play out time and time again. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. So not only does God give him victory of the, over the Syrians, not only does God give him these wonderful gifts, not only does God exalt him in the sight of the nations, not only do, uh, and also God uh, heals him from this uh, terminal disease. And how does Hezekiah respond to all those gracious gifts from God? His heart was proud. Pride. Uh, continuing on, therefore, wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Second uh, Chronicles 32, 31. And so in the matters of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. If, if you remember, and we have the, uh, no, I didn't put the cross-reference here, but if, if you remember, uh, the Babylonian envoys come to the kingdom. Hezekiah has these wonderful things. Hey, check out my stuff. He's, he's prideful, right? Well, they, they take it later, right? And so he invites them, the men. He shows them all these wonderful things in his pride, and uh, God pronounces judgment upon them for that, that because he's done this, the Babylonians are going to come in and conquer. Uh, but out of God's grace, he delays that judgment. It happens later. And Hezekiah is somehow happy about that. You know, at least it's not going to happen to me, kind of, a, kind of an attitude. But we see here in, in all that, so God does all of these things. God is gracious to him. And then God left him to himself. God left him to himself. Why is it that, that Hezekiah uh, is prideful, that he shows all these things to the, to, ba to the Babylonians? It's because God left him to himself, which then sh revealed what was in Hezekiah's heart all along, the sin. God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Not that God needed to know what was in his heart, right? Hezekiah needed to know what was in his heart. God was uh, not only disciplining Hezekiah, he was also revealing Hezekiah's sin. And uh, Hezekiah humbles himself before the Lord. God is using uh, sin uh, to accomplish this. Again, verse 26, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. And again, are those good things? Do children need to be disciplined? Is that a good thing? And no matter how old you are, you are a child of God, and we need to be disciplined. Is it good for Hezekiah and for us to know what is truly in here? Yes. Is it good for us to grow in humility? Yeah. These are good things. Second Corinthians, we see this not only in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. It's the same God, so we shouldn't be surprised. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 7. Uh, this is Paul speaking. If you remember, God uh, shows him this, this uh, revelation. 
he's taken up into the third heaven. And uh, he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited. So what's the purpose here? To protect him from pride, to, to bring about humility. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So just like with Hezekiah, God blesses Paul with these wonderful things. And so there's a temptation to pride. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh. Now I know there's a lot of conjecture as to what that thorn is. I think the next statement uh, clarifies it. That a thorn was given me in the flesh. That's a figurative language. The literal is the next uh, uh, statement there. A messenger of Satan to harass me. I think that's the thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. You can disagree with me if, if you'd like, but to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So God, uh, in his providence, has this messenger of Satan to harass Paul. And, and typically, how do... Uh, satanic forces harass Christians. Temptation, often, right? The fiery darts of the enemy. Temptations even to uh, unbelief, which is a sin. Temptations uh, to uh, a variety of sins, right? It could be any one of those things. And, and the purpose of God in doing so is to protect Paul from becoming conceited. To protect him from pride. And so, uh, again, we see a, a testimony there of God's uh, good purposes, even uh, in temptation. Protects his people from pride. So a couple big takeaways uh, in thinking through this. First of all, there's a great danger of blessing. Uh, we see that time and time again, Right? That God is so gracious to, to people. He provides for them. He blesses them upon measure. And what does a man's heart tend to do? Well, of course. I'm such a wonderful guy. Look at all the things that I did. I beat back those Assyrians. And that's our heart. And so to protect us uh, uh, from this danger of blessing, what God does is, oftentimes is he shows us the true state of our heart. This is what your heart actually is like. And in doing so, what he's doing is he's protecting us from uh, perhaps the most dangerous sin of all, which is pride. It's the, the sin of Satan. To want to lift up ourselves uh, either to the level of God or even above God. And so God, uh, time uh, in, in, in various seasons shows us in a much greater degree the sinfulness of our heart. And as he does so, uh, he may be disciplining us for other sins, sins in the past, uh, which then causes us to take sin more serious, which is a good thing. Uh, he's revealing to us what's there. He's working in us humility. And uh, just from experience, it, it it brings about a greater closeness to God. 
that in our times of greatest temptation, where do we tend to run to all the more? God, right? Lord, help me. I, I hate this sin. Lord, I, I'm dependent on you to change my heart. Lord, thank you for the blood of, uh, of Christ that covers that sin, that washes this sin away, that, that as he's showing the depths of our sin, we, we, we must run to him because we know we can't conquer it in our own power. And so that brings about a greater closeness and a realization of our dependency on God and it makes us more watchful that this is my, this is my propensity. I have a propensity to sin. And so I need to be careful. I need to be watchful that um, it, it's a dangerous thing when we think that we're, uh, we're not vulnerable to sin, which can happen. And so we must see that we are very vulnerable to sin so that we can be watchful for it. So again, uh, God's providence uh, over sin, he's working in us. Humility, realization of our dependency, helping us to be more watchful for sin. And, and so the question is, how should we respond when we see our sin? How should we respond when we are in a greater uh, season of temptation to sin? Well, these things, to recognize our sin. <laughs> uh, to, to be humble before God, to recognize our dependency on God, to plead the blood of Christ that much more. Praise God that uh, Christ's blood covers that sin. That we should respond in the, the very ways that God has uh, designed us to respond. And then lastly, this beautiful statement here. So that whatsoever befalls any of his elect, even sin, even temptation to sin, is by his appointment for his glory and their good. And that's a, um, almost a direct quotation there from Romans eight twenty eight to 29. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Including what? Sin. Now, there's an asterisk mark here. Does that mean we pursue sin? Yeah, God's going to do great things through the sin. So I'm going to, that's foolishness. Right? Because God also disciplines those whom he loves for their sin. There's consequences to sin, very real consequences. But God is working all things, uh, uh, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so all of this is for his glory. All things are from him and through him and to him. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, for his glory and our good. The Christian's good. And so this is a difficult this is a difficult thing. But I, I want us to consider what do, we, what do we lose if we don't understand this? We really lose any hope in sin. Not any hope, but we lose a good chunk of it. That if, if God is not at, 
providentially even using my sin for good if that's somehow outside of his ability. That should cause us to despair. That there is no silver lining. But because God is, is so sovereign that he's even able to work good out of our own evil, that should give us great hope and comfort. That, that my hope ultimately rests in, in the God who is sovereign and good and wise even over my sin. My hope rests in the God who loves me so much that he sent his son to take my place. That this is our father. That he has good purposes. That, that he's not surprised by our sin. That he's not caught off guard by our sin. That our sin isn't somehow more sovereign than he is. That God is sovereign over it. And, and, and that, that gives me great comfort and great hope as, as I see my own sin time and time again, the thing that, that I'm wrestling with, the thing that I hate, and, and it can cause me to despair and probably can cause you to despair. And, but then I turn my eyes to this. I first turn my eyes to the blood of Christ, but then I turn my eyes to this, that God is actually even working good through this. And um, that's a good thing. That's a good thing that can give us hope when we see our sin. God's, God's working good over evil in the life of Joseph, yes, yeah. And that, so we can not only have a hope uh, that God is working good through other people's sin, but we can also have a hope that God is working good even uh, through our own sin. Though it's foolish to pursue sin, thinking that. But this is a, pre- a precious privilege that only the believer has. And so we turn our attention to the unbeliever. And again, this is a challenging doctrine, but uh, there's quite an extensive uh, testimony in Scripture about these things. So let's read the whole paragraph, and then we'll break it down. As for those wicked and ungodly men, whom God, as the righteous judge, for former sin does blind and harden, from them he not only withholds his grace whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God uses for the softening of others." And so first of all, we're looking again at God's providential purposes for sin for the unbeliever. We see that as for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as the righteous judge for former sin does blind and harden. First of all, I want us to note that whereas this relationship, God's relationship to the believer is is one of a father to, to a child, to a son, the relationship between God and, and the believer is, is as a what? As a righteous judge.
And that might cause us to be, you know, that doesn't sound really good, but is a righteous judge a good thing? Yes. That, um, you know, you, you think about the atrocities in this world, we long for justice. We long for a righteous judge to take care of that, right? And so it's a good thing, though it's a hard thing. And uh, we need to recognize that uh, apart from God's grace in our lives, what category would we be under? This, this one, right? It's only of grace that a person is brought into this category. Okay? It's a gift. It's not something that God has to do. It's grace. So let's, let's see this. It says that uh, God uh, blinds and hardens uh, men. Uh, ungodly men as a righteous judge. Let's see the biblical testimony for this. Romans chapter 1, verse, uh, starting in verse 24. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Just, just as a quick side note, now this is talking about all people. All people in, in one way know what? They know God, right? He's clearly perceived in the things that are made. Uh, Romans talks us about before this passage. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, so sinful man knows God. He's clearly perceived in the things that were made, and yet he rejects God. He rejects the God that he knows. He rebels against him. Instead of worshiping this God, I'm going to worship my own God. I'm going to worship myself. How does God respond uh, to that sin? Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. It's talking about the sin of homosexuality. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Do you see a repetition in this passage? Do you see a, do you, do you hear a phrase that keeps being repeated? God gave them up. Now, again, it's important to recognize God doesn't cause people to sin. What God does in, in, in judgment for their sin is he gives them the sin that they want. He gives them up to pursue the thing that their, their heart desires. He lifts up the restraint. That, that you know, the, the unbeliever, any, any goodness that is displayed, the, the fact that people aren't as evil as they could be is because of God's restraining hand upon them. But as judgment for their sin, God uh, releases that restraint little by little and gives them up to pursue what they want. And you read through this paragraph and it sounds awfully like the world that we live in, doesn't it? That it's a form of judgment uh, that God um, 
that God does this, that he gives people over to the sin that, that they, they desire. Romans 11, uh, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Paul is dealing with the fact that um, many ethnic Jews uh, did not put their faith in Christ. And he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, so Paul is dealing with this question, why uh, so few ethnic Jews have put their faith in Christ? Um, has God rejected his people? And Paul says, no. I, I myself am an, an ethnic Jew. That uh, the people that God has foreknown, he has not rejected. And this isn't anything new. That even in, t- in the time of Elijah, uh, there was always a remnant of truly believing Jews um, at that time. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant. Just like there was in the time of Elijah, there's a remnant. Those who are saved, chosen by grace. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And so the reason Paul says that uh, the Jewish people who did not put their faith in Christ, why, what is the, uh, the reason for that? What does Paul say? They were hardened. And then he goes on to describe that hardening. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Now that, that sounds very strong, but we have to recognize, did they want to see? Did they want to hear? No. What did they do with what they did see and hear? They, they pushed him away. They crucified him. Right? And so God uh, gives them what they want. Eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear. That in Romans chapter 1, it talks about in our sinfulness, the unbeliever's sinfulness, what does man do with the revelation of God that's clearly perceived? Suppresses it. Doesn't want it. And so I, I know that's a very difficult thing to hear, but it, it's, it's reality. It's what the Bible says. From them he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts. Deuteronomy 29, uh, verses 1 through 4. This is kind of different language, talking about similar things. So God uh, is withholding his grace, the grace that would have changed them. Deuteronomy 21 Uh, 29 verses 1 through 4. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb 
And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants, and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. So they saw all these wonderful things that God had, did, uh, had done. That they saw this, uh, these miracles that, that delivered them out of Egypt. They saw the parting of the Red Sea, verse 4. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What, why, um, why did the Israelites who had seen these wonderful things, these amazing things, that God poured out such amazing grace on them. He doesn't save anyone else out of slavery like that. These, these same people, what do they do immediately? They're grumbling and complaining. They don't believe God. They, and, and on one hand, the cause of that is their own sinfulness. Right? We've got to recognize that. But here, we also need to recognize that God had not given them a heart to understand or ear, uh, eyes to see or ears to hear. Th- that if he had in his grace, things would have been different. Things would have been this. It goes on, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had. Now, that term gifts, it, it seems like uh, what they're talking about is actually um, uh, teachers, as it were. So if you remember in Ephesians, Paul talks about the gifts that God has given to the church, the prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, uh, the pastors and teachers. It seems to, to uh, be that the writers of the confession are taking uh, that use of the word gifts, that God withdraws uh, people who would proclaim the truth of the gospel, biblical truth to them. That's part of his judgment upon them as he withdraws uh, that. And we see that in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 15. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So before we move on, what, what is a prime, primary reason that Jesus speaks in parables? It's so that the people don't actually understand. Verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah, that this is actually what's happening Uh, right now. And so, uh, but I want us to note verse 12, that the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is in the context of him talking about his teaching ministry. And so he's saying part of the judgment that God uh, pours out upon sin is a removal of the word of God, as it were. That when people consistently reject God's word, They don't want to hear it. They don't want to understand it. What God does is he actually removes it from them. And and you can kind of see this play out in history, God's uh, judgment of nations. You know, if you think about the the hotbed of Christianity in the early church, you know, uh, northern Africa, 
uh, Turkey, uh, Greece, uh, maybe include Italy in there. Do you think of those places as uh, hotbeds of Christianity now? No, that in a sense God has judged them and removed them. Now, we still want to send missionaries there and, and all that, but uh, that, that's part of how God uh, judges uh, people, judges nation for their, for their sin as he removes those gifts, the gift of uh, sound biblical teaching. And so for us, um, just as a side note, we don't want to be those who reject sound biblical teaching. Because, you know, maybe not in our lifetime, but that's part of how God judges a place is a removal of it uh, for a constant rejection of it. So he sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. That uh, God actually puts people in a place in which their sin actually is shown all the more. Opportunities. Um, again, it, it's, it's a difficult thing, but Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses, uh, starting in verse 27. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving us. So uh, the Israelites uh, are passing through uh, Sihon's uh, land, and they're just asking, hey, let us buy things from you, basically. Let us pass through here. Verse 30, But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. Why? That he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession, that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. Why did God have the Israelites pass through the land of, of Sihon? Well, gave Sihon an opportunity to show what was in his heart, which was what? Sin, right? And God, we see, we see contrast here because what God is using for, for judgment for Sihon in his sin, he's actually also doing what for, for his people? Blessing them. That, and that's a pretty consistent theme we see in scripture that uh, often blessing for God's people comes through judgment. Uh, Egypt would be another example of that, right? That God is judging Egypt for their sins. And uh, what did the Egyptians do when the Israelites are about to leave? Give them all their stuff, right? You have judgment and then you have blessing at the same time. But God gives Sihon this opportunity to show his true colors and judges him for it. And again, does God create that sin in Sihon's heart? No, he just gives them opportunity to reveal it, to show it. Second Kings chapter 8. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword. 
and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. So uh, God tells Elisha to uh, prophesy um, to Hazael that he is going to make him king. And Elisha is weeping because he knows when Hazael will become king, what will be revealed? His sin. Now, is Hazael a different person when he becomes king? Does he somehow change? No, it's just revealing what was already in Hazael. That, that God putting him in this position actually gives him the opportunity to show what was in his heart all along. Again, I know it's a very challenging thing, but it's there. It's there. And with all, gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan. Uh, for the sake of time, uh, let's uh, just read Psalm 81 there. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Salah. Hear, O people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. This is what God would do if they would simply turn to him. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. We've seen this in other places, but again, that's part of God's judgment. He gives people what, what they want. He gives them over. Whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. That uh, the same sin, as it were, that God uses to soften the believer God uses to harden uh, the unbeliever in judgment. And so, um, it would be a good passage to look at for that. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2 there. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the same rock, speaking of of Christ, the same rock, uh, for one people, it's their cornerstone. It's their foundation. For another people, it's a stone of stumbling. It's a rock of offense. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now 
you have received mercy. What's, what's the difference between the person who stumbles over Christ and the person whom Christ becomes their cornerstone? What's the difference? So to one, to one it's a blessing. But, but why do some people stumble over Christ and other people, um, Christ is their foundation? It's God's mercy. That's the, the difference. Ultimately, this, uh, this is not talking about sin, but in this, the same thing, Christ, causes some to stumble and be led into further judgment and others uh, to be blessed. Romans 9.18, Therefore he has mercy on whom he will, and whom he will he hardens. And so... Um, God's providence over sin, this is what he's doing for the believers. Uh, and God's providence over sin, this is, he's using sin as a form of judgment uh, for the unbeliever. He's, he's letting them have what they want. He's removing his restraint over their sin. That same removal of restraint over sin which produces humility uh, and softening in, in the believer actually hardens uh, the unbeliever. Um, as I said at the beginning, this is, this is a difficult doctrine. I think we see that, and um, our reaction is that's unfair. Right? And a couple of things that, that may help us in that is first of all, if we truly demand fairness, if we truly demand pure justice, would this category exist? No. We would all belong in this category, and God would be just. If you think about it, um, we, we have all committed the same sin, in a sense, as And yet, is there this category for demons? God does not send his son to take on angelic being to die in the place of fallen angels. It's purely grace that he does that with sinful man. And so, um, I think part of what makes it difficult is we don't understand grace. We think that grace must be given to everybody. But that's not grace anymore. Grace is a gift. It's, God is not bound to show grace. He, again, he doesn't show any grace to the demons. He doesn't have to show grace. But he chooses to show grace to some. And that, that's a, a marvelous uh, thing that shows the glory of, of, of his grace that our sin, again, is not a light matter. It deserves judgment. It's good and right for sin to be judged. And yet God has shown mercy. And so, you know, I, I know it's a difficult thing, but I think what makes it difficult, one is, is we don't understand the sinfulness of sin, uh, how, just how evil it is, or even our own sin. We don't understand grace, that there can be a, a tendency to have sort of a, 
uh, entitled, like, well, yeah, God has to show me grace. He doesn't have to show anybody grace. And so um, I know that's difficult. But if, if God in his justice decides to give people what they want, that's, that's just. And so, um, you know, thinking about the unfair thing and, and grace and all of that, imagine if this morning I gave every one of you a 12-ounce uh, telegraph coffee. Okay, every one of you. Would you be happy about that? Okay, or, or a hot chocolate. <laughs> okay, but I decided to give my wife a 20-ounce cup. Is that unfair? Are you guys uh, entitled to me giving every one of you a 12-ounce cup of coffee? If I want to set a particular love on my wife, do I have the right to do that? And actually, that's a, good, that's a good thing. We have a covenant relationship, right? I've covenanted with my wife. There's, there's promises that I've made to my wife that I haven't made to you guys, right? Is it still loving that I would give you all a 12-ounce cup of coffee and gracious? Yeah. Does the fact that I give my wife a bigger cup, does that diminish the grace that I've shown you? No. Now, imagine a different scenario. Because with God, it's, in us, it's a very different scenario. All of us are rebels against God. We have all, uh, um, our, our sin displays a hatred of him. We've rebelled against him, the king of kings. And is God still gracious on everybody? Does God show a measure of grace to all people? That, that anybody should enjoy anything in this life is a grace of God. It's God giving them not just passive people, I'm not saying that you guys are passive, but, but, but people who are directly opposed to God. He gives grace. The, the sun shines on the just and the unjust alike. That uh, in, in some ways often we see that God shows at, at least a, a greater material grace to the unbeliever in this life. Right? He pours blessing and blessing upon them. And what is the response by them for that blessing? Pride. A greater hatred of God. And so if God, if God so wants to show grace to all of those people, praise God. That's, that's an, if, if that's all he did, that would be wonderful, amazing grace. And if he then decides to covenant with a people, to make promises to a people, and to bless them with the gift of his son in their place, can he do that? Does it diminish the grace that he's shown to the others? Is it unfair? No, it's, it's all gracious. And if he decides to show grace to some more than others, he can do that. And it doesn't diminish, diminish the grace that he shows to the others. And so God has that right. We don't deserve grace by very definition of the word. And yet God uh, gives all people grace and he gives a particular people a particular grace. He shows his covenant love uh, to uh, a people that he has chosen. 
So ultimately, what is the difference between the one that hardens his heart over temptation and sin and the one who softens his heart over temptation and sin? It's God's grace, God's grace and mercy alone. I know we're a little late, but let's finish up with this last statement. As the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, we just talked about that, he, he shows goodness to all people and grace to all people. So after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes of all things to the good thereof. In other words, like we in that illustration, God shows a particular goodness and grace to his people, to the church. 1 Timothy 4.10 for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Just a quick note, this is not a universalistic, that's a hard word to say, statement. God is, is not saying that all people are saved. This, uh, in this sense, Savior is talking about showing uh, blessing uh, to people. God shows particular uh, blessing to those who believe. Proverbs 2 uh, verses 6 through 8, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in inte- integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. He has a particular care for his church. And so um, that gives me great hope <laughs> that God particularly loves his people. That he has particularly invested in his church. That he is particularly concerned for the welfare of his church. And so, uh, you know, when, when Christ says, I will build his church, uh, build my church, he will do that. And so though uh, nations may be judged, uh, even the nation that we're in may be judged, Our hope is ultimately that God doesn't have a particular love for America. Our hope that God has a particular love for his church. And so even if America is judged and things get awful, God has set his particular love on us and he will take care of us one way or another and is working all things together for his good, uh, for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the love that you have set upon us in your grace. We don't deserve it. Lord, we thank you for your providence even over our sin that you are working all things together for good to conform us into the image of Christ. We pray, Father, as you reveal our sin that we would respond appropriately, that we would plead the blood of Christ, that we would rest in Christ's righteousness, that we would look to you to change by your spirit that we would be humble, that we would see more and more the depths of our sin and the heights of your grace in Christ Jesus. We pray for the unbelievers that we know, that you would save them, that you would transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous Son, that they would enjoy uh, your providence even over their sin. I pray that you would uh, crush the hearts of those who are obstinate against you, that they would be broken over their sin, that they would see their great need for Christ, that they must have Christ, that they would rest in Christ, and that they would uh, no longer have you as judge over them, but a Father who loves them. And pray, Father, that you would help us to take great hope in your particular love for your church, that we would have great confidence, uh, even in the face of an unknown future, because we know that you 
care for your church. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.